first reading can be found on page 1182 of your Pew Bibles and is taken from Colossians chapter 1, starting to read at verse 1. That's page 1182. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up, in you, stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister in Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. The reading is Luke chapter 10, when I get to it. Verses 25 to 37, and it starts on page 1041. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. mute. Am I on? Yeah? Can you hear me? Good, good, good. What a, a superfluity of activity we've had already uh, with the, uh, the news of the ASDA grant, which is great news, isn't it? And the great news about Ros being licensed as L&M in the team. Wonderful what God is doing here at Migay. And it's always great delight for me to come down and worship with you. So thanks for having me again. It's great to be here. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes by the presence of your spirit here with us, in us, so that we might uh, understand what you're saying to us through what is a very familiar passage for many of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is such a familiar story, isn't it, the Good Samaritan to many of us. Uh, We use the phrase Good Samaritan all the time, don't we? You know, that person who helped me when my car broke down and helped me change my tire, he was my good Samaritan. Or maybe some of us have even volunteered for the charity, the Samaritans and the great work they do. But however familiar we each are with this idea of a good Samaritan and the story of the good Samaritan, I want us to see that the meaning of Samaritan was very different to the Jewish people of Jesus' day. You see, the hero of this story was the bad guy, was a bad guy. So let's study it afresh, and as we do, we will see that there's more to this story than just social action. So verse 25, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This wasn't someone genuinely seeking guidance on matters of life and death from Jesus, okay? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, yet Jesus knows what this guy is all about, doesn't he? He he asks him, well, what is written in the law? After all, this guy is the apparent expert. He should know what it says. How do you read it? And in fairness, this expert, he seems to know that it's not about doing stuff per se that gets you into heaven, but it is about the response of the heart. Now, being an expert... He knows the foundation. He knows the bedrock of Jewish law and recites part of the Shema to Jesus. You know, the centuries-old words taught the people of Israel by Moses in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. All God-fearing Jews knew they were commanded to love God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he says to Jesus, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we might think that Jesus came up with that last part himself, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, It wasn't new teaching to the people of Israel. It actually came from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it reads, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. It's like he's saying, cool, that's it, my friend, that's the answer to your question. Do this and you will live. And that little word live in the Greek is a word called zoe, meaning deep, spiritual, eternal life, living water, life 
now and in the age to come. Do this, Jesus tells him, and you will know true life in the depths of your soul. So it feels at this point in, the, in their exchange that they're now done talking, doesn't it? They're done. This guy has answered his own question. But of course we already know that this guy wasn't a genuine seeker after the truth that Jesus was proclaiming. Genuine seekers after truth don't set out to test people, to trap people, to make them say something heretical to the Jewish faith and therefore give them license to discredit Jesus and his ministry. You see, the religious elite of the day, they were watching Jesus, as you know, very closely all the time, scrutinizing everything he said and did. And often, because of what Jesus taught, they felt they needed to justify themselves. And this was in public, remember, this conversation. This guy was an expert in the law. There was nothing he didn't already know about loving your neighbor, about looking after people within the confines of the law. He was the expert who needed to come out on top in front of everyone who was listening. He was the religious daddy, not this uneducated person from Nazareth. The God this guy worshipped was Israel's God. Therefore, his neighbor was any Jewish person in need. Simple. Or was it? He was making sure. He was making sure there were still defined limits around just how far his compassion might extend. But of course, for Jesus, Israel's God was the God of grace to the whole world. And his compassion was for everyone, no limits to God's love. We heard read in Colossians 1 how this grace extended to the congregation at Colossae, a group of pagan converts who discovered Christ's compassionate salvation for themselves. And Paul and Timothy write to them full of joy because their friend Epaphras has brought news to them back in prison that the Colossians are full of faith, they're full of hope, they're full of love, and the gospel is going viral across the Mediterranean. It's brilliant. But here at the time of Jesus' life were those, like the expert, who were trying to confine what compassion meant. Now, one of Jesus' best techniques for working on people's hearts, for challenging them at their very core, was to tell stories instead of answering their question on their terms. And the parable that follows is probably one of the best known by us, as I said, and this is how he answers the expert in the law. He says, a man, presumably a Jewish man, is heading down a notorious route from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's attacked by robbers, and he's left for dead. And Jesus uses three characters to make his point, three kinds of people who each see the man and each respond, but they're not three random characters that he's plucked out of the air you know, as he's telling the story, they're three deliberately chosen characters. He's making a very subtle point about human compassion over against religiosity and cultural prejudice. A Jewish priest saw the man. He saw the man with his own eyes and passed by on the other side. I'm not having anything to do with this. Thank you very much. I might get contaminated and then I'll be ritually unclean. And then I'll have to go through all this kind of ritual to be clean again, and oh man, I've just got stuff to do. I haven't got time for this today. I'm going to give this guy a wide berth. And then a Levite, one of those from the tribe of Levi, chosen to serve at the temple, your worship leader type. 
he too saw the man and did the same as the priest. He puts distance between himself and the man, between himself and actually having to be part of solving the problem. Now, on Pentecost Sunday, uh, a month ago, I just finished the 8 a.m. service at St. Mary's, right? And I fancied a cheeky coffee from Greg's before the 10 a.m., which was our big team service. So off I toddled past the car park of St. Mary's and uh, down a little road called The Chase to the vineyards. And I heard this really loud shouting. I thought, oof, it's a bit early for a domestic, Sunday morning. Whew. Don't, don't, don't like what's going on there. I thought, I'll just carry on walking. And then I heard another loud shout, help me, ambulance, ambulance. I need an ambulance. Well, I can't just walk by, I've got to do something. So I kind of worked out where the sound was coming from. I saw that there was a window open. It was a bit high for me to see over, through and over. And I said, are you okay in there? Ambulance, I need an ambulance now. I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I've got to call an ambulance. So I called an ambulance. I said, um, there's a guy. It sounds like he's uh, in a lot of pain. And he uh, looks like he's on the floor, but I can't see him. But um, I can see that there's a wheelchair there. Um, can you come? And I said, yeah, ambulance will be with you soon. Um, then this guy shouted out, my, my, uh, my key lock safe number is this, this, this. I said, okay, great. Right, so I uh, uh, got the key out, the, uh, the key lock. I thought, well, I can't go in there on my own in case, you know, that doesn't look good. Um, I better do the right thing. Um, uh, so I called Tim. That's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> and amazingly, Tim was just walking around the corner as I was on the phone. And so he and I, we went in and we saw that this poor guy had fallen uh, I think it was off his commode, actually. And, and then he was just lying on the uh, kitchen floor. And this guy in his late 80s. And we didn't want to move him, didn't want to cause any damage to him. Um, the ambulance came eventually, and some couple of really lovely people from St. Mary's came and helped and stayed with him to wait for the ambulance because we had the 10 a.m. service to lead. But I had to get involved when I first heard that shouting. You know, stuff my coffee. <laughs> you don't pass someone by, do you, if you can be part of the solution? How's this expert in the law now feeling? He's just been told that two important figureheads, which represent his culture, right, a priest and a Levite, have not done what the law had required. They failed their human neighbor. But Jesus is an expert narrator, isn't he? He continues, but a Samaritan, and just that word Samaritan would have triggered a sneer, a tut, a shake of the head from this Jewish expert, as you know, there was deep hatred between Samaritans and Jews, and it went back centuries. Jews were purebred children of Abraham, and Samaritans were a mixed-race people group. There were Jews who had intermarried with non-Jews when Israel had been carted off into northern exile by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC. There was no love lost between Jews and Samaritans. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Jesus then has basically lobbed in a narrative grenade into the mix. The Samaritan, you see, the Samaritan saw the human being, not the label. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? The great care that the Samaritan took of the man, the great cost he was willing to pay because the human in his arms was worth it. He was willing to pay the cost to his time, his wallet, and even his own standing in his own community 
if any of his own community found out that he'd helped a Jew. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? That's how Jesus ends his story. And you can just hear the expert mumble the words, the one who had mercy on him. You know, notice that he still can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Jesus' response, go and do likewise. So there's so much, isn't there, that we could take away from this parable. But crucially, there's more to this story than just social action. You see, being a good Samaritan is not just about intentional acts of kindness, random acts of kindness, emergency acts of kindness. Yes, it's about love, it's about kindness, it's about compassion, but it's ultimately about God's compassion towards us and how then we respond to a hurting and broken world with his compassion living in us, working out through us. In this parable, and also in the, in the story of the raising of the widow's son in Nain, and also that wonderful story, the prodigal son, the word compassion features right at the heart of each of those stories. And it's this Greek word, splagnitsomai, meaning being moved to our inward parts, being moved to our bowels with compassion. It's visceral. You see, isn't God the Samaritan? Isn't he the one who, because he loved the world so much, dared to approach us, dared to reach out to save us, paid the cost of binding us up, who then ensures that we are all nurtured and healed within the inn of his community that is the church? Isn't he the absolute definition of grace? So let's not just take away another hearing of this familiar story in our heads. Let's, let's ask God to help us to act upon it, shall we? How do we act upon it? Firstly, love. We're all hyper-aware at the moment, aren't we, of the cost of living at the moment. But let's also be aware of the cost of loving. Lack of love is easy to justify, isn't it? I'm busy. They're not my people. It's too costly. Someone else more trained will do it. What do I know about mental health? What do I know about helping the elderly? I'd like to give to that person. I'd like to give some money, but <laughs> we're all hard up at the moment, aren't we? Cost of living. It's never right to justify it, but it's so easy to do, isn't it? We all do it. Who's our neighbor? Well, this parable tells us anyone and everyone. How do you love them? In ways that meet their need. You know, last week, I just finished the 8 a.m. again. And I fancied a coffee from Greg's before <laughs> heading back to do the 10 a.m. And I thought I'd drop my robes off in the car because you don't want to walk into Greg's carrying your robes, do you? And I heard it again, that loud howling noise. I thought, no, I didn't hear that. Put my robes in the car. I'm going to get a coffee. Help! Ambulance! Doctor! Now! I know that voice. So I went to see my friend. I'll call him Bob. I went to see him again, but I... I couldn't get into the house because for some stupid reason I was trying to get into the wrong key safe. Um, my mind was, wasn't quite there. And um, anyway, I called out through the window, are you okay, are you okay? 
get an ambulance now, get an ambulance now. I thought, oh my goodness, he's, he's fallen off his commode again. And I looked through the window, I couldn't see anyone lying on the floor uh, or anyone in the room. I thought, okay, he's probably on the kitchen floor again. I'll call an ambulance. Called the ambulance. Um, they were going to take ages to come. Fortunately, a neighbor came out of the other flat and the two of us went in. I've got the right key out the key box this time. We went in and there was Bob lying asleep in bed. Well, not asleep, lying in bed, just sitting there. I said, you okay? He said, my carer's not come. I said, oh, right, I thought you were in trouble. You were shouting for an ambulance. Nope, my carer's not come. And uh, can you put my hearing aid in because I can't hear you properly? Okay. So that, uh, I thought, well, who, who's your carer? Oh, I don't know. I haven't got his number. All right, okay. Um, so I uh, hunted around the house. I found his number, called the carer. The carer said, yeah, I'm on my way. I'm just with someone else, you know. But the point is, <laughs> I had to get involved again. He needed his carer. You don't pass someone by if you can be part of the solution. But perhaps now there is a greater need, a need for, for Bob to be rehoused or, or helped in some other way. Perhaps it's something that, that Tim and I can, can do to, in some way, be a part of helping him. And I think one of the things we need to avoid when we're responding with compassion is, is to use a, a modern phrase for, a, for an age-old thing, virtue signaling. We're all aware of that, aren't we? Virtue signaling. We see it everywhere, especially on social media. Virtual signaling is really all about, it's all about us looking good. It's all about our egos. You know, look at me, look at what I'm doing. Aren't I compassionate? Aren't I doing the right thing? It's never about the person and their genuine needs. So when we're responding to people's needs, we need to really watch that. I don't know if you've seen the film, a 2019 film, uh, Greed, starring comedian Steve Coogan. Okay, he stars as Sir Richard McCready, the high street fashion retailer in the style of multimillionaire Philip Green. And it's uh, Sir Richard's 60th birthday, and he hires the whole of the Greek island of Mykonos, as you do. And he flies in people like Elton John and, and everyone in to uh, celebrate with him. And he flies all of his family in as well. And his daughter Lily comes, and she's starring in a kind of made in Chelsea style um, reality show. And she comes along and she hangs out with her dad for a bit and all the preparations are going on. And one day she's uh, on the beach filming her reality show, right, because the cameras follow her everywhere. And they come across some refugees, some Syrian refugees on the beach. And she decides to do something about it. So she gets some food organized from somewhere. They fly some food in at great expense. And she films herself giving the food out to the refugees. And she doesn't like um, the take that, that the cameras do. So she says, can we do that take again, please? It's just, it's just not right. I'm not looking that good, giving the food out. The refugee doesn't get it. He wants the food back. She snatches it off him, and he wants it back, because she wants to do the take again. She's completely lost the plot. And the rest of the film shows that she just can't work out who she is anymore, whether she's the person in the TV show or whether she's a, a real person herself. She's so preoccupied with herself that she can't respond with integrity to the genuine need in the other person. You see, the cost of loving, the cost of genuine compassion means we will get our hands dirty and often get nothing out of it. It might mean nobody knows we've done anything good or if they do, they don't care about our optics, as they say today in the world of politics. 
They just see that we got involved. The cost of loving. That's what we see in this parable. (coughs) Secondly, I think there's something in this parable that reminds us about faith and deeds. The Apostle James writes, Some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. I love James. He's always straight down the line, isn't he? We don't try to please God by doing stuff. We need to hear that right, okay? You know, we're not trying to please a headmaster figure. He won't love us anymore if we do more, right? We don't try to please God by doing stuff. We do stuff in response to all he's done for us, in us and through us. And so in his compassion, we respond to the human need around us. We demonstrate that we love him and that he loves others too. To love well, I read the other day, we must love the right person, i.e. God. When we love the God of love, when we love the author of life with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then what we hold out to others will be genuine compassion, not fake virtue signaling or dry, empty religion. Faith and deeds then, because, because we love the right person. And finally, this parable reminds us that compassion spans the whole of Scripture. This parable is not a false distinction, you see, between legalism versus compassion. It's not the law is bad and Jesus is good. I don't think that this parable contrasts the two. It's about the law comes from God and Jesus fulfills it. It's about having a right understanding of the law of Moses, which this guy didn't have. You see, the religious elite, they misapplied the law. They venerated the law so much that they they often missed the point of what the law was all about. And so when God bursts on the scene as one of us, they cannot see that he's the complete fulfillment of it. They just can't see it. They're blind to it. But lived out correctly, the Jewish law of Moses was always meant to be compassionate. Yes, there were strict do's and don'ts pertaining to holiness and morality, but these were the markings around the football pitch within which the game of life was to be safely played by Israel. Freedom within boundaries. And part of living in that freedom was both receiving and giving out love and compassion. You know, Matthew 9, when the Pharisees learn of Jesus having dinner at Matthew the tax collector's house, they are apoplectic. They demand an answer for this, something that can fit into their religious frame of reference because to them, it is preposterous that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. How could he? The law forbids it. Or did it? Had it instead been misinterpreted and misapplied? And Jesus, hearing about this, he says to them, it is not the healthy you need a doctor, but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Quoting the prophet Hosea. First and foremost then, God wants our love and our obedience before he'll receive our sacrifice of worship. He wants to see that mercy displayed in the way that we live out his love in the world. He wants to see our mercy and our love before he'll accept our worship. Isn't it lovely 
that upon the wounds of that half-dead Jewish guy, this compassionate Samaritan pours on wine and oil, the two things used in the sacrificial offering, his sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. May that be said of us, responding to those we stumble across in our journey through life. Amen.